In the realm of libel cases, it has become customary for media lawyers and First Amendment scholars to extend a certain leniency towards the defendants. Their rationale is rooted in the belief that the law should allow the media some room for error, even in cases where those errors are significant, as long as they're not intentional. Enter the case against Fox, where the compelling array of evidence presented was nothing short of damning. A mountain of text messages and emails surfaced, exposing the producers, hosts, and executives who seemed to delight in belittling the claims made on air regarding hacked voting machines and conspiracy theories. Dominion, the plaintiff in this legal drama, had all the ammunition they needed to prove that Fox had indeed defamed them. Now picture the scene in the courtroom. The jury, ready to tackle questions about the limits of the First Amendment and the potential financial repercussions for Fox, suddenly found themselves off the hook. At the 11th hour, a deal was struck sparing them of the responsibility of making such weighty decisions. And it's not just the jurors who heaved a collective sigh of relief. Media heavyweights like Rupert Murdoch, Sean Hannity, and Tucker Carlson were preparing to take the stand when they were conveniently excused as well. Dominion isn't done yet. They have pending lawsuits against other right-wing networks like Newsmax and OAN, as well as some familiar names in Trump's inner circle like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Mike Lindell. It's a legal whirlwind with staggering amounts of money sought in damages. Smartmatic is another player in the voting technology arena, and they've thrown their hat in the ring, too. They're going after Janine Pirro, Maria Bartiromo, Lou Dobbs, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, Fox, with a whopping $2.7 billion on the line. As we watch Fox News and other right-wing outlets and pundits suffer financial consequences for their actions, it's important to recognize that these decisions and settlements will have far-reaching implications throughout the entire media landscape. This is because big media, much like the U.S. government, is a flawed and troubled institution. Its corruption is not necessarily tied to accepting bribes, but rather a systematic symptom. It fails to live up to its claims, responsibilities, and its societal expectations. The news media and government are intertwined in a destructive cycle of manipulation, myth-making, and self-interest. And in the process, the press corrupts not only itself, but also the public policy-making process and the public's perception of reality. Rather than seeking out and reporting on the underlying truths of an issue, the press often propagates dueling cover stories complete with their drama, their conflict, and quotable advocates. In essence, Media gives us the news, but not the truth. To discuss all this, I invited Jake Ubertis on the show. Jake is a legal clerk, a podcaster, and is releasing his first book this summer called A Chilling of Free Speech, which is concerned with campaign finance and the Citizens United decision. Jake and I have a pretty compelling conversation about the entire media landscape, the political and fiscal philosophies of these entities, and whether we, the public, are the ones to blame for the state of the media. But find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Jake Hubertus with Jay Berkshire. Watch out, you might get what you're after.
Hello and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, I'm excited to have a special guest on today's episode, Jake Hubertus. Jake is a law clerk from New Jersey and co-host of the podcast, Criminally Drunk. The podcast is his college buddies, Corey, Jack, and Brendan, who along with Jake present their takes on some of the most jaw-dropping true crime cases in the world while enjoying a weekly drinking game. It's a unique and entertaining approach to discussing the greatest crimes in the history of mankind, but... I get to say this, I was actually a fan of your first podcast, which was called Legally Drunk. So, you know, I go back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Legally Drunk was such a great time. Uh, and we're hoping to bring something like that back soon. But uh, thanks for having me. I know it's hard to keep it all together, especially it's tough for me. And I do these things. You know, it's just me. Yeah, coordinating multiple schedules, especially with uh, like my co-host Lou, who's a professional musician whose schedule is oh, okay. super fluid. So yeah, now I hear you, but I didn't realize you were doing criminally drunk. So now I have I think thirty episodes to catch up on. Or something <laughs> like that. So that's cool. Well, I appreciate you being a fan. Well, definitely. So um, I was excited to have you on because I thought you'd be perfect for this. You know, obviously the Fox Dominion settlement is yeah. uh, is pretty fresh in people's minds. But there's so much more going on than that, obviously. You know, we're going to have the Fairmatic versus Fox case coming up, which mm -hmm. is even going to be bigger. I think it's $2.7 billion that they're suing them for. Yeah. We did have a settlement between the Georgia election workers and uh, OAN. There's just, I think there's this larger question at play here, which is whether I'll say big media is on trial or not. So when, when I say big media, I'm referring to like major news networks and yeah. entertainment organizations. So, you know, TV, cable, newspapers, magazines, news sites, things like that. But, you know, I wanted to get your take on something like that, especially with your background. Yeah, I think the Fox and Dominion lawsuit, it's really emblematic of all the other cases, I think. It's, it's a paradigmatic example. I think that's a really great question. Is big media on trial? I, and the question that's kind of in my head when I look through a lot of this is, how much are the media companies to blame and how much are we as the consumer to blame? Are they really just kind of giving us what we want to hear? Do we as the consumer really want like a true fact-based news source? I wonder that a lot because there are times I'm, I always wonder if somebody actually tried to come across as just straight news. Like, would that actually be a market, you know, especially today? Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, these are all boardrooms and... Uh, oh, yeah. People who answer to, you know, stockholders and things like that. So you could almost look at it in the sense like movies have changed in the last 20 years. All you see is, you know, oh, yeah. disaster porn and Marvel type movies, right? <laughs> but it's safe and they know it usually will make money. And a lot of reboots and stuff. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's not, a, you really got to hunt for the originality. But I think you can make that case too in media. These are big organizations. I mean, when you think about Fox, 
obviously $787 million is nothing to sneeze at. I read that, you know, yeah. that's one fifth of their quarterly earnings. I mean, yeah. which is huge, but I mean, that, that means they make $4.5, $4.6 billion a quarter. They're always going to take the route that's going to get them the money at the end of the day. And, they, and human psychology says we like what's familiar or to be a part of something. And I think the movie point I was trying to tie in there before is the same. So Fox or CNN's business model is to feed us a viewpoint that we're going to keep coming back to, whether it's out of familiarity or, or kinship. And you have to wonder, are they spoon feeding us what we want to hear to? And I, I think there's, there's a lot of blame that could be pointed towards us as the viewer. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's a few different directions to go there, but I think kind of to circle back what you mentioned earlier about how successful or is there a market for a totally neutral fact-based media outlet? I think the answer is no. And yeah. the reason I the reason I say that is because even though it's something I think a lot of people would be interested in, no less an authority than Bob Iger tried to work it every which way to create a fact-based neutral media source. And he says it's economically just completely not viable. And I'm willing to take his word on that as sad as it may be. But so one thing I do question though, is do we even really want that? Because I think what would be best for media companies is not to be without bias but for them to be upfront with their bias. Yeah. I think that that's a way to, because you want news that is passionate and has an argument to make and yeah. a point to make. Um, I think a lot of people just can't necessarily take the time to become experts on something and form an opinion on it. I think journalists fill that niche really well. So I think an issue I had with Fox is not, its existence as a right-wing media company, but that its slogan up until very recently was fair and balanced, like it's coming at something from the center. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I guess the problem becomes, you know, we all have our slants, and um, yeah. even journalists who try to be fair might have, what is that, an unconscious bias yeah. towards, I, you know, I think we all have an unconscious bias, which means... I might skew my opinion a certain way or look at something without really knowing that I'm doing that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think it's okay to have something that asks the question the other way. But on the other hand, you're also right that, yeah, they, they tried that slogan for a long time. And then it's funny when all these guys go to court, they're just, they're not journalists. They're all of a sudden entertainers, which exactly, yeah, which tells you something, right? You know, it's like a chicken or the egg question. You know. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think money really underlines all of that, kind of like the point you were making earlier. I mean, I think that's fundamentally, at least Dominion's argument is that that's fundamentally what this defamation case was about for Fox. And that was their motivation. Yeah. I think, yeah, Dominion produced some evidence in court that was made public that Fox's quarterly viewership was down as much as 35 percent yeah. in some cases their stock price after uh trump started tweeting 
negative things about them dipped some five or six percent almost overnight Mm -hmm. it uh they had some major losses and they needed to come up with a way to recoup on those you know i I read something somewhere that newsmax you know got six times the viewership that they had really what started it all was that they called arizona for biden so once that happened you know, that started the onslaught from Trump and his team. And then, you know, Newsmax and OAN reaped the benefits. And oh, yeah. Well, you being a guy who studies and deals daily in the law, mm-hmm. I, I'm reading all this stuff that's coming out. And, you know, don't they have like a big legal team that's telling them pretty much don't put any of this stuff out there in writing? I mean, maybe you can't stop the text messages that these guys had, but I mean, yeah. Rupert Murdoch made some comments, in, I think in emails and, and, and left a trail. There was just, this is like a Perry Mason moment, probably, for, you know, for those lawyers, it's like, we just have everything handed to us. I mean, it was believed that one of the main reasons why Fox settled when it did is because Dominion was going to have yeah. Rupert Murdoch testify I mean, I mean, speaking of the role he plays in this case, you mentioned it really started when Arizona was called for Biden. Almost instantaneously after that happened, one thing I found really interesting was there's records of Jared Kushner being on the phone directly with Rupert yes, Murdoch. I read that too. And when I heard that, there was something, I, I wasn't surprised necessarily, but there's there's something inherently wrong to me about that. And I kept trying to put my finger on what exactly it was and i I guess it it sort of makes or puts out into the open a direct connection between government Mm. and to what's supposed to be our free public media or private media and there's something very disillusioning about that i think yeah i agree with you i mean you know that's like one of the things they were arguing about at least on the right side when all the twitter files Mm -hmm. out that the fbi was getting involved with the election but i think you're right i think that's a that's a direct line to the government to the highest level echelons of government and i'm sure somebody in the biden and white house has a direct line to ted turner whomever but yeah it's you know what everything's just like a little more blatant with this group though. <laughs> like as far yeah, I as, think that's right. Yeah, as far as any precedent that can be smashed, this president had done it. Uh, yeah. So you know, in some ways, kudos to him for putting himself in the history books so much <laughs> in the future. But I, I don't think it'll be too kind for him looking, looking back. I don't think so either. I, to answer the question you posed about. Don't you think Fox's legal team should be advising them not to do all this? I think I think they were initially much more confident in their case than they should have been. And initially on the surface, Fox's argument is a fairly compelling one. If you don't really dig down too deep into it, their argument is essentially we're just reporting on what the president of the United States is saying about the presidential election. Yeah. How, how could that po- how could there so- possibly be something wrong with that? Right. And like I have an inclination to like you know there's almost a patriotic element to that. I want to be like, yeah, that can't be wrong, but that's really not what they were 
doing. They yeah. weren't just reporting on it. They were actively encouraging and endorsing things that, to quote the judge in the Dominion case, was it was crystal clear was the phrase that he used mm-hmm. that these things about they said about Dominion were not true. Right. Well, that's where, from what I read, and I haven't you know gotten too deep into the other case because it's the big ones, but you know Dominion obviously still has lawsuits that are filed. Like they're going against I think Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just Fox; they actually have a few coming up. I think they and have Mike several against OAN yeah. and uh, Mike Lindell, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, obviously with defamatory remarks, you know, you have to have a pretty high bar. And they were just, Fox was just so reckless with it. Mm-hmm. They said that it might not be as easy to do with these other cases that are out there. Yeah. I th- but then on the other hand, you've had, I think there were previous cases. It was either Dominion or Smartmatic. I don't remember which one had against OAN where they were actually able to secure an on-air apology from OAN, which they didn't get in this case. They didn't get a retraction from Fox. But um, I mean, at that point, the damage is already done. But I do think to some degree, that's a bit of a symbolic victory, if nothing else. I read something that I thought was kind of funny and interesting about that settlement, that number, that's 787.5 million, because it's strange, you know, it's just kind yeah. of an out there number. I read that, that Fox wanted it to be that number because visually it's under half of what they were being sued. So they could kind yeah. of say we won, you know, we just gave them yeah. less than half, even though yeah. it's $12 million off of <laughs> – of the number of being half. But I yeah. thought it was interesting. It was still like, they get to keep that marketing face on. And on top of that, they don't apologize. They just said that they found certain claims about Dominion to be false. That's it. And there was, yeah. <laughs> and, and all the bravado they had going into it of, this is an, we have an unassailable case. This is an unprecedented attack on the First Amendment. And some bold statements they were making about this lawsuit that and and it was interesting watching the judge rather slowly completely chip away at Fox's mm-hmm. all of Fox's arguments. And they were really backed into a corner at the end. They they settled because they effectively knew they were going to lose this case. Oh, yeah. I mean, that argument Fox tried to make was trying to tap into its own viewership, I think. And that's why I kind of think of it as big media being on trial and not just Fox or other right-wing news organizations. It almost was like they're trying to tap into patriot. You you mentioned that you know you feel patriotic, yeah. sort of about an argument like that. And I think that's what they were kind of tapping in, trying to tap into. Yeah, um, I think so. But it made me think: Is this moving forward how we're I don't know if this is going to be the right way to phrase it. Is this how we're policing the First Amendment going forward as far as trying to decipher the difference between what protections are afforded to the media and really what constitutes libel or slander? I feel like a lot of things now, that's going to be the protection. You know, it's 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 the courts. It's It's not really the public opinion anymore because public opinion has gotten so biased and skewed. There's there's almost like no reality to it, right? There's no almost middle ground. So this yeah, is I mean, we, 
you can read like six different headlines and come to six different conclusions. And if you're not going to use like a news aggregator or something, it's very easy to sway public opinion. Frighteningly so, I think. I do think it's funny because you you mentioned libel and slander laws and defamation laws kind of being a uh, a news safeguard. I, I like distinctly remember Trump saying in the lead up to the 2016 election, what he wants to do is open up our libel yeah. laws so we can sue people and win yeah. a lot of money. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. exactly you're right. You know, I didn't. I forgot about that. No, I was just going to say, like, I, I do think the courts offer, I think, a good protection for some people and some organizations and some groups that have the ability to fight these lawsuits. And I think to the extent that an individual needs to fight these battles, you almost do need to tap into the court of public opinion in order to have any, I think, ability to win. I think you do need that groundswell of support from the public in order to even sometimes afford to fight these lawsuits. Like, I mean, how much money did, has Trump raised for his lawsuits? Yeah. Through, just through the bully pulpit. No, no, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, these are major, major powers to going against each other. So you're right yeah. as far as it affords a certain type of individual or corporation or whatever you want to call it. A, a good way to defend against something like this. But when you mention the court of public opinion, you might have meant it a little differently than this, but I tend to go to Gen Z when I think about that because they're the one generation who seems to be the disruptors and tend to rally together because mm-hmm. they're, you know, everything. You, you mentioned Iger, and this was, you know, when I think of that Disney and DeSantis, obviously that was – I think post Iger and then, you know, Chapek and then he's was, back. Yeah. yeah. Now he's back. So, <laughs> yeah. but I, you know, I remember uh, Chapek in the beginning of that wanted to be apolitical. So yeah. Iger might have a point because Disney wanted to stay out of that and they couldn't, their own employees wouldn't let them. And that's, that's more of a testament to Gen Z, but that's another thing that that's just insane right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you get into whole, like these niche land use laws and everything (laughs) like that. It's yeah. That's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. There's another case where they're going to come down to what the courts decide. Right. I mean, I guess it's always been like that, but it feels a little bigger these days. See, I would, I would push back on that a little bit in the case of DeSantis, because I think he crafts legislation and, just does things with his executive power, not caring whether or not it's going to be deemed legal. I mean, I think he's basically O for lifetime in oh, yeah, court cases. But that's, but that's where the court has a is going to determine how far he can go. They're able him. to go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, he's. I think Disney. Disney's going to destroy them. That organization's so well run. It's like I, I can't imagine yeah. going up against. <laughs> The flip side of that, funny enough, and not that this is a high bar, I do think this is probably the best case DeSantis has yeah. in terms of his ability to win. But yeah, going up against Disney, on they're, they have so much money at stake riding on this, actually, that it's, yeah. I mean, the, the thought of 
Florida building a prison right next to Disneyland. I mean, it's insane to think about. Well, that's kind of the problem I think he's going to have where you're saying that he probably had his best case there. But, you know, when he's opening his mouth, it sounds exactly like this is retribution, you know? So um, I just, I don't know. I would see them carving him up on that, but, you know, time will tell. I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things you, you never know how these cases are going to turn out. And that was one of the things I thought was uh, interesting too, with the dominion case. Cause I saw a lot of, you know, I guess experts and people say sure, yeah. they, they should go all the way with this. And it's like, well, I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's also like fiduciary uh, yeah, exactly. responsibility. Like if you go, you have almost 800 million, which is, a crazy amount of money. Yeah. And then you never know what's going to happen in these cases when it gets to, to trial. I mean, you don't even know because you probably could explain this out better. But from what I understand, I mean, they could get awarded $1.6 billion and the judge could cut that down to like $200 million or something like that, right? It, so it kind of depends on how the jury wants to divvy it up in okay. terms of like what counts as like – um primary damages and what they can prove and uh, what would be kind of added on top of that in order as like a deterrent or almost like a fine um, on Fox. So there's usually caps on uh, those types of damages. They're called punitive damages. Right. Um, So like, for example, like perfect example, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember what the exact figures were, but it was cut down a lot from what yeah. the jury actually awarded because uh, the state of Virginia, I think it was, has a cap on the amount of punitive damages that can be awarded. Um, but yeah, I, I, in a lot of states, I don't know what... Uh, well, I, uh, well it's a, this case is a lot of interesting stuff going on with choice of law because it was in Delaware but yeah. New York law was applied to it. Um, there's a lot of legalese involved in explaining how that works, yeah. but proceed. I don't know if this would be substance. It would depend on if it's whether or not the judge determines the final award amount would be considered substantive or procedural. If it's procedural, that would be a Delaware thing. If it's substantive, that would be a New York thing. Um, but yeah, no, I mean the, your overall point is hundred percent correct though. There's, risks to dominion to carrying it out because there's a possibility they get nothing i mean there was a slim slim to none i thought they were definitely going to win that case and i think the judge um in the most even keeled way possible basically said as much but yeah no like even my dad was like i wished they you know really pushed that as much as possible and just dragged it into the public as much as possible but yeah, I mean, they have a responsibility to their shareholders, especially in a time where I have to imagine Dominion's financial situation isn't great. I would think that as well. I mean, you. how often do you hear stories of and watch stories of counties just canceling out on them for no discernible reason? Yeah, well, I mean, even if it's proved at this point, it's almost like, you know, there's baggage. <laughs> Do we want yeah. all the baggage that comes from that? Like, even if it's, even if we know they're not cheating and there's, there's no crazy conspiracy with Hugo Chavez and. Oh my Hugh. God. Yeah. I loved 
get a little off topic. What I love about all this, too, with all this election fraud stuff is I kind of laugh because I'm like, well, I mean, first of all, like Biden has done a pretty good job of passing some legislation compared to what we've done in the past, like, 15 sure. years, right? You could say yeah. that. It's so hard for the Democrats to agree on any legislation to get passed. Mm-hmm. I can't see them getting together and throwing an election. I, they just wouldn't be able to do it. And why... If they could get rid of the president anytime they wanted, why do they have to deal with, you know, uh, what's his name? Why have Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, like that. And, yeah. you know, Graham and all those guys, they would just yeah. get rid of them. And the other thing is, if Trump really believes that the election was fraudulent and stolen, why is he running again? Why run? It's not going to be fair, right? I mean... I remember in 2016 when nobody thought he was going to win, he was pulling that stuff already, just he, laying the groundwork. In, when he lost in Iowa to Ted Cruz in the primary, oh, he said yeah. there was fraud, and he still hasn't conceded that he lost that election to Ted Cruz. Yeah. I wonder if he's like, does he actually believe all this stuff? Like, is he that great? No matter what evidence is put in front of him, or is he? I sway back and forth on this a lot. I, currently, from from what I've read from people who are close to him and familiar, I think he does genuinely believe all of that. I think even though Biden was leading in the polls the whole time, he thought there was legitimately no chance Biden could win the 2020 election. And the only way he could do it was through fraud or some sort of grand conspiracy. And I kind of laugh at you know, this the same for the same reason you do. Like, you really think the Democrats are competent enough yeah. to pull off something like that? Like, yeah, you know, it's it's funny because it's so bad. I remember um, somebody was talking about it on a podcast I was listening to. Shit, I can't remember his name, but I think he wrote the book "What's the Matter with Kansas" and a couple of other ones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a Republican at one point, I think, in college, and then he said on a podcast I was listening to, he's like. It's like the Democrats don't want to win. All they have to do is pass some kind of legislation that would help regular people and they would never lose an election ever again. What's amazing is I think uh, this was kind of one of my big takeaways from the 2022 midterm election was both parties were so unbelievably off base with their talking points from what their constituents wanted and the issues their constituents wanted them talking about. And the Republicans just happened to be a little more off message than the Democrats were. There was, I mean, to me, the epitome of it was there was a great SNL bit where they had somebody playing uh, Carrie Lake and uh, they asked her, you know, why do you think you're going to win the Arizona governor election? And she goes, because I talk about the issues Arizonans want, like crime in New York City, like (laughs) Just like, um, yeah, yeah like a, a major issue to your point that the Democrats completely missed was talking about housing costs. Yes. And for people my age, Gen Zers and Gen Zers and millennials combined now actually make up the largest voting block. Uh, their number one issue was housing costs. Yeah, I wonder about that a lot. Yeah, that was something I, you know, I had wanted to cover at some point too on the show. I, I did, I did talk to somebody on like it was like my fifth episode though when I was terrible mm-hmm. still. Um, <laughs> I can't go back and listen to any of those. So I'm like, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. But that's an interesting issue because it's like 
Well, that gets into, again, a lot of these, you know, NIMBY type of things and zoning issues. And yeah, um, a lot of these places, you know, in California, it's like you never, you can't put a duplex anywhere. Like there's just no, yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, before we we started this, I was saying you had that episode on your your podcast where you talked about, well, it was mainly about the costs of infrastructure and why it's so costly in America. But I thought it was interesting because, you know, you're talking about how anybody can just kind of stop things from happening, right? Like legislate against, or not legislate, I guess, you know, sue sue against it. And um, even if you're going to lose, it still delays the project right. and any delay drives up costs. Right. And that's that's a huge issue, I think, all mm-hmm. across the country. I guess from what I read, it kind of slowed down with the, the Great Recession, a lot of the building, and it never really came yeah. back, right? Yeah. I mean, right now with the housing market, you have a lot of different things going on. Uh, you mentioned places like California. The main narrative has been oh, people are leaving California, but actually it's kind of the opposite. Um, Jobs are being created at California at a rate kind of unprecedented in American history. And that's causing a lot of people to move, especially young people to move out there. And they're, I I saw, I forget what the, the actual term they put to it was, but there's this ratio of job creation to how quickly you're building homes and California is creating so many jobs, but their home production is just not at all keeping up with it. That's So basic supply and demand, the demand's going up and the supply is not really going up. Partially why housing costs are through the roof is because their economy is in a sense too good. You know, I feel really bad for your generation because on top of that, student debt is another thing that you guys carry yeah. with you. That's one that always drives me nuts too, but because that, that's such a a drag on the economy to me, to your purchasing Oh my, power. yeah. It's, it's very much a drag. And that's, you know, one of the main arguments I use for the one-time student debt relief plan that's currently held up in the Supreme Court. But there's just, you know, right now market forces as well that hold back housing, like the simple thing that wood's really expensive right now. Well, yeah. There there's a labor shortage with con- in construction, things like that that should hopefully correct itself, but the other thing is because those things are expensive, you can only build a home at a certain price point. So, yes, that was something can, right. You can really only build homes for people who are probably in their like early mid 40s trying to move on to their second home. And a lot of those people don't want to move, even though they may be able to get a better deal because they either moved during the pandemic or remodeled during the pandemic. Like home ownership isn't just a, uh, it's not completely driven by money. There's also a lot of sentimentality yeah. and just like, you know, I settled down in this house and built my family here. I don't necessarily want to move to save a few dollars right now at the very least. You're right, though, with the sentimentality, because even this house that I bought, it, it works in both ways. I mm-hmm. put in an offer for the house I'm living in now. And somebody else put an offer. They put a cash offer. And I don't have cash like that. Yeah. yeah. They they took my offer because we're from the same town that mm-hmm. they were in. We we had a family. So they just, you know, sentimentality won out on that. Yeah. My my friend Corey uh, on our show, 
one of my co-hosts, he sold a home during the pandemic. And that was kind of the thing. He ended up selling for a little less than the highest offer because he he just liked the couple moving in a little bit more. Did they did they write him letters and stuff? <laughs> I don't remember I exactly a, what they did, but that's really cool that they did that. I because so we sold our house and you know we're actually we we were still looking for a house sort of it was it was gonna it was gonna be an interesting time if something fell yeah. through but um yeah we had multiple offers on ours because it's kind of like to your point we we bought a house um in 2010 so the market was pretty much just down to nothing yeah um and it was one of the few homes around here that was like I think it was too bad. It was a small house. What you're essentially talking about is they can't build starter homes. It just doesn't. There's no money right. in that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so when I went to sell it, it was like you know I had an offer before somebody came to look at it on a Thursday night. I made an offer and I was like, well, I have an open house this weekend, so let's just see what happens. But mm-hmm. I had like you know three or four offers and. <laughs> three of them wrote letters to us and we were like we're like well you know the first letter comes and we're like wow that's really nice like Mm -hmm. yeah maybe we should take you know it was like a family coming from the city and they were like i I could see my daughter in the backyard and you're like wow Mm -hmm. yeah they they're gonna win and you read the other letter it's like the house was red and they're like my wife grew up in a red house and i'd like i already picked out like the flowers and and it was like oh my god God, how do you do that? How do you pick this? You know, any so you're like know. you're you're almost like holding. Pe- it's almost like not yeah. even your decision. Like you're holding people's life yeah. in your hands at that point. Yeah, you know, uh, I got to crush somebody. So, <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. Um, a, a couple of my friends, uh, they live in the city. Brendan's actually one of them. One of my co-hosts. Uh, he got a uh, COVID rate on an apartment. And as soon as that expired, they were told they had like three weeks to find a new apartment. And it was during the summer, right as the pandemic had ended. And it was the peak of people moving back to Manhattan. And people were snatching up apartments without even looking at them. It was one of the most insane three-week periods. They were lucky they managed to find something. But to almost, to, to kind of bring it back to the media and talking about what we were talking about before, if when people talk about like a housing crisis, I think one thing that doesn't get brought up a lot is, well, there's two sides to every housing crisis. So some people mention that, or some people kind of write what we're in now is a housing crisis or like a quasi housing crisis with mortgage rates being so high with what the Fed's been doing. A housing crisis is usually only told from the perspective of a home owner when you're someone like me who doesn't own a home and wants to buy a home within the next five years or so, mortgage rates being high right now is great for me yeah. because prices aren't going to go up that much over the next five years. I, so the media usually only talks about it from the perspective of a homeowner. That's true. I, Yeah, no, you're right. It is only that real perspective you're looking at when it's the media. But that's a huge issue when we're talking about the media, right? Um, yeah. And you're talking about um, sides, you know. It's it's we're, what we were saying essentially before was that, you know, it's good to have opposite opinions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's bad when you never see those opinions, I guess, butt against each other. Because the yeah. ultimate goal of having all this is to find, I don't want to sound like so philosophical, but it's like a higher truth, right? My truth and your truth. Sure. We get them together and then we find, you know, the higher truth. And that's, and that's you know, that's what politicians are supposed to do when they get together, right? We, we make some kind of deal. That's good for everybody. But, you know, that's a problem with people, too. It's It's just... I think why it might be so easy to, I guess the word manipulate people is humans act according to their emotional impulses more than what's rational. Like I've read, I read something interesting once that said the reason why uh, economists are always wrong Mm -hmm. is because they think rationally and people don't. Yeah, no, I think that, I think there's something to that and it's, you know, I was reading some psych- uh, psychologists explain how, and, and this is something that's used in political science, humans are much more easily swayed through stories and anecdotes than we are through data. Data is not a natural thing for us to analyze. Like, one of the reasons why Lincoln was a fantastic politician was he was an amazing storyteller. Yeah. And that's what he would do. He would whoever he was with, he would kind of tailor his story towards whatever the benefit of um, whoever he was talking about or whoever he was talking to. So like when he was trying to sell the emancipation proclamation to a lot of white Northerners who didn't necessarily care what, what the fate of black people were, he, he basically simply said to them, do you try to appeal to their sense to their own selfishness? He would say, Look, we need more soldiers to win this war. We can throw your son on the front lines, or we can throw a bunch of freed slaves on the front lines. Take your pick. Right. But I there's mean, this. I was just going to say there was this. There's this interesting. Not to throw another buzz term in here, but there's this interesting concept in critical race theory that's. It talks about the marketplace of ideas and how it's not real. It, it doesn't really operate the way we assume it does we kind of assume the marketplace of ideas is this, I mean, I picture this like, you know, Greek Socratic square where you have all these philosophers pitching their ideas and having uh, structured debates and eventually coming to an agreement. But CRT argues in reality, what it is is people go in with their beliefs and their ideas and they really just kind of argue within your own group and you just really come up with the best way to reinforce your belief or reinforce your idea and you just come up with better arguments to support your conclusion instead of evaluating different arguments to find a rational conclusion. Well, that makes sense in terms of media today. If you watch the little offering of an opposing opinion, you'll find that most of the time, uh, pundits, and this happens with everyday people too, they're not looking for mutual understanding. It's more of how do I trump your point to win the argument. And listen, psychology plays such an important role in all that. And I think especially with the, you know, I promise meandering conversation, so... You know, you get into <laughs> AI and yeah. you get into things like what Facebook has done. 
um, essentially turning people into data points to just be plucked away at. And it, it, you almost have no chance as a human being, I think, against a lot of this stuff. I think it's just something that could just pick apart at your brain and like... I just I don't I don't see how there's a chance, and that's why you know going back when I talk about it, the court's determining a lot of this stuff. I mean, because that's probably the closest place we can have rationality at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, there are rules right. that you, people have to follow. I mean, that's I think ultimately what kind of saves it. But I, you know, I think whether or not you have a chance as a human is really kind of dependent on yourself in terms of. I think smart people and maybe not even smart, but wise people aren't afraid to be wrong. Yeah. I th- and I think that's so much of what's an issue with public discourse right now is people are deathly afraid of being perceived as wrong or incorrect. And, and I think so much of that is kind of what I mentioned earlier, and that's fighting for a conclusion Instead of trying to like learn something and reach, I guess, that higher truth we spoke about earlier. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Um, you know, I think people like being smart, right? Whether you're smart yeah. or not, right? That's yeah, definitely like sounding smart. Like, I might listen to John Stewart take down somebody and then I'll, mm-hmm. I'll talk like that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but. You know, I haven't really put much thought into what he said. I'm just taking something he said and sounding smart and hoping nobody heard him say that or something like that. You know, and I think there's yeah. a lot of that. Um, oh, yeah. So I was always the type of person I like to, to pick a little bit. So, you know, when somebody would make some kind of like bold statement like that, I would just even if I kind of agreed with them, I would always be like, well, why do you think that? And if you keep asking questions, you usually get down to they don't really know what they're talking about. They just heard it somewhere somebody their cousin told yeah. them something and it sounded good you ask um my co-hosts or like my girlfriend especially i'm definitely like uh my brain goes towards being a just a devil's advocate yeah because i'm because i'm interested in like you know i i find that um and it's people find this weird that i apply it to politics too i don't really care what your beliefs are I care more about the reasoning behind why you believe what you do. Yes. So like there are certain policies or ideas that Trump had, for example, uh, that, you know, I thought the conclusion wasn't necessarily wrong, but I completely disagreed with his reasoning as to why he got there. And I'm like, you don't believe this, I think, for the quote unquote right reasons. Now, there are a lot of pragmatists who would take the complete opposite approach. You want to get something done in a democracy. It doesn't matter why someone believes what they believe. It's their vote counts the same. Yeah. Uh, But I would rather see the logic behind what you're doing because that's what's going to sway me, not necessarily the conclusion. Yeah. So my interest in a lot of this stuff, especially with politics – you know, it's so hard in a country. I think this country, especially because you're talking about 50 states, it's a little different mm-hmm. than Europe. You know, yeah. I get when that argument's made about certain types of things, like maybe healthcare or something. It would have to be done mm-hmm. differently here. Um, I think we're completely different. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you're talking about 375, I think, million people at this point, something like the 350. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And trying to hammer out something for everyone is impossible. It's always, it's always going to have to evolve. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everyone has a point. I think everybody's a little right in their belief and very, yeah. You know, like, I think that's right. Yeah. I I just, you know, I actually, so I grew up in a, in a conservative household who used to watch a lot of Fox news. So, Mm -hmm. um, Growing up, I saw a lot of that, and I probably came to age a lot during the 9-11 era. So I've had a lot of exposure to one side, and then I've also thought that, well, why is, you know, why do we believe this or why do we believe that? And I've come to a conclusion where I try to look at matters for what they are and not not towards a side, right? Like, so yeah. student debt would be different to me than than housing or tax policy or, you know, certain things. My point is that I think, I guess we're just looking at everything from the standpoint of, uh, yeah, I feel like our view has been skewed not towards policy or issues. Not like, what will I, not what do I get if I give something up, but how do we stop the person I don't necessarily agree with from getting a W at all. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter how good something Trump did or something Biden does. You're liable to have 50% of people just not like it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if their life's better. And you could have Trump do something that the Democrats want and yeah. vote against it because it's Trump who's doing it and vice versa. I mean, you saw actually a lot of that between the Republicans and Obama towards the end. Yeah, but. well, that was, I was thinking if you look back, that might've started with Gingrich, but Clinton was at least able to pass meaningful legislation with Republican support. I mean, they hammered at each other publicly all the time, but, you know, Obama and Trump were pretty much Clinton- Clinton had something that Obama and Trump really didn't have because they were pretty much left to hoping for majorities to get anything done. You can always push it farther and farther back. Gingrich is definitely a guy I point to a lot, but I think that's just a modern take on it. I think there's my theory, generally speaking, when it comes to politics is the past was always worse. I think people kind of, yeah, people too. People tend to look at it through rose-colored glasses a lot, and I think a lot of people, like my parents' age and my grandparents' age, their perspective is a little skewed in yeah. that they grew up during an era of American politics of like unprecedented kind of civility and. Yeah. A negotiation and two sides kind of being able to come together but if you look at the vast majority of american history what we have now is indicative of our system yeah, it's really like their childhood that's the outlier uh, yeah so that's a fair point um and that's something i try to watch too because i probably came of age in the 90s and early 2000s and it's like you know, now in the 90s, yeah. nostalgia is like just huge. And I get it to an extent as far as it's probably like, you know, the uh, 
cars were just good enough. <laughs> the internet yeah. was just like kind of out there. And so, yeah, it was a different time. It's pre 9-11 to me, which is a big shift in the culture. Well, I think technology plays a huge role in our politics. Like, yeah. I think I think part of the reason the civil rights movement or civil or segregation rather ended when it did was because you had televisions in everyone's house at that time. That's and true. people in the North were, instead of just reading it, seeing it every night, what was going on. You know what? I would agree with that. And it's a little different now because there's almost too much choice. And yeah, right. So you, you would have like a trusted source you went to, mm-hmm. but you're right. Like you listen long enough and it starts to almost become like, it's your idea. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's implanted <laughs> in there. It's definitely different. You know, the advent of, of television probably helped a lot with that seeing it as opposed to, you know, people used to have the radio stations, but that was all local. Right. I would think mostly, mostly. I mean, right? yeah, I think, um, FDR kind of was famous oh, for being true. able to, but I, I mean, he was, I think, more an exception than yeah. a rule. And imagery is definitely different than hearing it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You talk about imagery, and obviously you're talking about physical imagery, but I think like what we also conjure up in our heads today is like very relevant. Yeah. So this is kind of this theory that I have where. You, you talked about growing up with like, in a conservative household. I wouldn't say I grew up in like a conservative household, but I grew up with parents who vote Republican. Yeah, and you know I know many people who are Republicans, and uh, so I have the benefit of being able to not just grow up but interact on a daily basis with people whom disagree with me, yeah, and vice versa, which I think is a huge benefit. I think. A lot of the people who live in highly populated areas or in cities, even though we think of them as more left-leaning, everybody in the city knows a Republican in all likelihood. I think part of the reason hyperpolarization is kicked off as much as it has is because, well, I think political scientists and mathematicians are partially to blame here because we kind of came up with this whole system of winning is for the Democrats, especially that, you know, you have a finite number of resources and it's not worth allocating any of those resources in a lot of massive swaths of this country. And I think there's no, so there's no investment in local Democratic Party headquarters. There's no investments in any local left-wing radio or left-wing television. And in bad swaths of this country, there's just, it's all Republican and there's no interaction with Democrats whatsoever. So what right-wing media, I think, is really figured out effectively is they don't really have to show that the Democrats are, you know, crazy or bad or whatever they want to say. They just have to create this image of what people think Democrats believe and are and want. And that's what they have to get them to hate, which is pretty easy. Yeah. And you could tell, listen, I think Republicans played a long game because they did do a lot of things from the ground. I mean, that's how the courts yeah. kind of got to where they are. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. They started at the local levels and, and then worked their way up. And mm-hmm. and you're right. I mean, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that Democrats have 
probably forgotten about the constituency that got them there, which was the working class people in these rural areas, in these old union guys and stuff like I, I can see where they come off as elitist city snobs, you know, like I could see. Yeah. But I always say me and you would be considered coastal, you know, whatever yeah. they want to call them, uh, libtards or something, um, yeah. just to use the word. I always feel like, listen, we go blue all the time, but I feel like we have a lot of, it's a lot of purple. I mean, even oh, a lot yeah. of the rich upper class white people, you'll see Trump signs and stuff like that. It's it's not as, it's not that big of a sea of, of blue. And neither is California, by the way. They have the most no. Republican voters in the country. They have yeah. four and a half million people voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, there just happens to be 12 million people in that state, so... I think it's 35 – well, voters, oh, no, I don't know what voters, it was. Yeah. yeah, it might be yeah. 35 total. I think 12 or 13 voted in the last one. I mm-hmm. looked that up. But I know – Either yeah, way, yeah. The it's, highest it's, number of Republican voters come from there. Uh, yeah. So imagery definitely plays a part. They create – they're able to create this boogeyman of what they – considered to be a democrat and there's no democrats there to refute it they're really only getting one side you know because i think if you well i don't think i know based on like studies that have been done if you do the classic uh this is what joe biden wants to do point blah 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 blah, it'll pull at a certain percentage like probably around 40 45 percent if you but then if you say what do you think of the, this? these ideas? And they're the same ideas, yes. but don't put Joe Biden's name on it. It'll pull like 66 to 70%. Yeah, I've seen that study where it's like, yeah, I think 54% of the populace agrees with policies that would be considered left of center and not like radical stuff. No. But that to me doesn't mean we're more left or right. Uh, it just means we have a lot more middle ground and places of agreement that the imagery in media would probably probably make you feel is way more skewed than that. Oh, definitely. But but it's like, what do you think? But I mean, the classic one, I think this was kind of the study that started this was, what do you think of Obamacare? Oh, I think it sucks. Now, what do you think of this plan called the Affordable yeah. Care Act? This sounds great to me. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. In those areas. And here I've seen it, you know, where people are like, um, well, the Republicans are, are nuts, but, you know, then there's also the Democrats are oh yeah, are overtaken by the far left. And mm-hmm. I'll always say, like, that's that's kind of horseshit, though. Um, yeah, I, I push back on that a lot. They, like, they take the stuff that's online. Mm-hmm. Online, there's, you know, I don't know any Democrats who are like what they're talking about. I do know a lot of Trump voters who believe, you know, still believe the election was overthrown though. I know yeah. very, very smart people who still think that or have these yeah. weird ideas. Um, but it's a visual thing. Cause I, I say that a lot, this country, like somehow the Democrats are always on their heels. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the socialist boogeyman's coming, but I'll tell people, you know, let's get into a different topic. But I'm like, neoliberalism won a long time ago. It won oh, yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. We're living in the society that Reagan brought us into. And believe me, like, I understand where Reagan might have been coming from back then after the 70s and, you know, everything yeah. that was going on between 
distrust in the government and mm-hmm. uh, economically, you know, stagflation and things like that. And uh, I, I always say Watergate is, yeah. at least by my generation, underappreciated in terms of how huge it was. Uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's probably the high watermark of where that sentiment towards the government came. And then Ford pardoning Nixon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right after we lost prestige in the world after Vietnam and, you know, the seventies mm-hmm. are just like, you're kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's where your rose colored glasses came in. Cause I know a lot of people who were living in the seventies who think it was, yeah, this is the best of times, man. That was, and you had the, the peak of rock and roll. Yeah. Well, you know, you take the good stuff. That's like, I look yeah. at the sixties though. I like a lot of sixties yeah. music, you know, big Beatles oh, yeah. and stuff. And it's yeah. like, man, 60, 68 has got some good stuff going on, but that's like, the craziest year probably for the u.s history when you look at it right? it's one of them it's definitely I, up there i look at that as like yeah that's you know i mean i think people i mean we have such selective memories well listen this was a great conversation and thank you so much for coming on thank you why don't you plug yourself your your podcast and uh you know tell me what's going on with that what you got anything coming up yeah, so you can uh, check out the Criminally Drunk podcast if you're interested. It's a true crime show with me and some of my college buddies. And um, we post, uh, try to post bi-weekly. We got a uh, fun little story coming up about uh, this guy, the man who can't be killed. That's what we're calling it. So uh, <laughs> definitely, ch- yeah, definitely check that out. Um, and yeah, keep an eye out for, uh, we didn't, talk much about it but uh my book that's uh gonna be coming out it's called a uh, chilling of free speech it'll be available on barnesandnoble.com uh hopefully by the end of the summer so uh oh, that'll cool. be yeah it's about uh campaign finance and the uh citizens united decision so uh yeah definitely a, really excited about I have that. that on the docket to look into but maybe i'll just have to have you come back for that one definitely that'll man. make I'd it easier for it. me just to ask you questions and you answer them i like it better <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.